0: Nick McKinley, Mike, have you seen the article on you uh, where it's like this is basically the modern day Jack Ryan?
1: Yes, that's <laughs> a that's a funny backstory. That is a funny backstory.
0: I it, it, first off, I am jealous because I have no article like that. You know, <laughs> they wrote an article. This guy was like an average, mediocre seal uh, who pretty much rode the coattails of other guys. I mean, it, that's a impressive article. I mean, it makes you sound like you uh, you walk on water.
1: Yeah, you know that's their job. Uh, it, it was funny. So Vice reached out to me and said hey we're doing this jack ryan series mm-hmm. i'm not a big tv guy mm-hmm. i was familiar but i'd never actually seen any of the jack ryan stuff and so they sent me clips of the the tv show and i watched it and i'm like yeah that's not me like well we we understand that we're gonna we want to interview a field operative and we want to interview an analyst Uh, However, we understand you have a little bit of a background in both. Mm -hmm. uh, And Jack Ryan had a military background and you've got a military background. So will you please do this? And at first I was absolutely not, I'm not doing this. You know, we are, we are quiet professionals. And it was uh, uh, two mentors of mine, completely different people. One, Greg Jackson, you know, Jackson Wink MMA. The other is uh, Colonel Jones, his former exo CAG. Uh, He's kept me from making really dumb decisions a lot and he said nick quiet professional doesn't mean silent. style you're going there and that, that said, is one of the greatest phrases yeah he said uh there will be a narrative and control the only question is will you contribute to it and yeah. if you don't contribute to it you have no right to complain about it and i was like okay well you know and then i i i talked to greg about it and i said hey greg you know you have to do a lot of media i don't know anything about media what do i do here and he said nick you not taking advantage of these opportunities is hurting your cause I was like oh man there's two people now who are telling me that i need to do this so so i called uh, i called vice back and said all right fine i'll do it but i want at least half of whatever you're doing to cover the work that we're doing in the fight against child trafficking yeah and and human trafficking writ large and they said no problem. We'd love to cover that too, and so that's uh, that's kind of how the whole thing happened. And as it as at uh, a summer semester at grad school, right? So I'm in Boston, uh, and I remember I took I, w- I was taking class or, or you know taking classes and as i'm like walking from building to building across harvard yard i'm <laughs> like on the phone with vice media like hey i gotta go to a gotta go to an economics class but i'll I'll get back to you as soon as i can with an answer to your question and it was it was uh
0: vice just went down sorry. too right I, vice I, meter, I think they went or they de- they declared bankruptcy
1: yeah i don't know if they did i know I heard get they were going out. to yeah but yeah somebody so that's, coming that's in kind That's kind of what happened
0: You know, it's funny. This is what I love about podcasting is like you go off on these uh, these tangents, but the you know I just spent two days Fox News in Newsmax, and every time I do that, like I go through this depression because it's these like societal norms from our communities of the quiet professional, right? But again, it's it's been a lot of mentors are like Mike, go represent the community well, don't show your ass, and they, they you know one said, why'd you join the military? Oh, I read all these books and I saw all these movies and then I met a real force recovery, and I'm like, no way, they're true. I, we, we joined because Hollywood is one of the most powerful just recruiting tools the military has, especially special operations. You go watch Black Hawk Down, which was much prior, or after we had joined, but mm-hmm. you, you can't help but walk away being like, bro, I want to be a ranger or CAG or, yeah. or, or a PJ. I, go, or, yeah. I,
1: I mean, at the end of the day, we're men and we want to do cool stuff. That's, I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Now, if your cool stuff can also have a purpose behind it, then you've got, you're, you're pursuing a righteous mission. Like what, what bigger calling is there than that? So, I mean, I got, you know, people say thank you for your service. And I don't get into the conversation, but I, I routinely want to say no, thank you for paying your taxes, and allowing me to do that stuff. <laughs> I said the same things. I'm like,
0: I've got about a hundred thousand dollars worth of mountaineering gear and, uh, and cold weather clothing, clothing sitting in my garage. So thank oh, you. Oh yeah,
1: but- and hundreds of skydives, and you know, thousands of hours in really cool aircraft, and like this is, I mean, people would would, would kill to do this, and I see this in predominantly in men. Uh, I I engage in the venture capital community Mm -hmm. with some of my other businesses, um, engage in these these communities with these extremely wealthy people who never did anything like that when they were younger. And they a lot of them regret it, not all, but a lot of them regret it and wish they had done something like that. And so I realized that even though I financially right, and I'll catch up but even though i i financially didn't take advantage of the comfortable situations that i could have I and mean, i turned down an appointment to the air force academy nobody does that my team chief said i was the dumbest guy he'd ever met which is still true mm. uh, but but to but that was to do the cool stuff that yeah. i wanted to do and pursue this extremely righteous mission and you know, anybody who says, post-September 11th, I can see where people will say, like, oh, I joined out of patriotism. But if mm-hmm. I'm completely honest, I mean, d- did I love the country? Sure. You know, the the Boy Scouts and becoming an Eagle Scout taught me a lot about, you know, patriotism and the things that I was supposed to do. But I didn't join the military because of patriotism. I joined the military because I wanted to do cool stuff. That's what happened. And year did you come in? 1996. 1996. So I was 98. Yeah. So okay. I, grad, I, uh, I graduated high school did not go straight to college, not a popular decision around the the kitchen table, even though my parents were still very supportive and none of this would have happened without them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, enlisted. And I didn't want to be an officer because then I had to be a combat controller and I didn't want to be a combat controller. I wanted to be a pararescueman and pararescue did not have officers at the time. So that was, I mean, it, it became a pretty binary decision for me.
0: You know, coming in prior to nine eleven. <clears throat> I agree like again I just wanted to do cool things I wanted to jump out of uh, airplanes yeah. I wanted to dive um, I wanted the camaraderie yeah having done high school sports and I didn't find that so I did do one semester at uh University of Colorado Boulder which was beautiful but I spent most of my time skiing uh, as um, you should with, with the gold pass I don't know <laughs> if they call it the gold pass anymore but I, I had to withdraw from all my classes and, and enlist in the Marine Corps before my dad could get his uh, hands on my neck um but when I, you know, it took me until 2005 to actually get to a combat zone because I, the Marine Corps sent me back to school. Right. right prior to 9 11. And then we weren't part of SOCOM, which if you ever heard the story so much. Mar- oh, yeah, that's right. The Marine Corps, General, or the Commandant of the Marine Corps, Al Gray, tough man, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, um, said all Marines are special. Special. Ops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, probably the biggest mistake, you know, bravado, pride, Drove that decision, and the Marine Corps lost out on a lot of time they could have been in SOCOM. MARSOC could have been leap years ahead. Not that they're, they're, they'll catch up with right. the Marine Corps improvised, adapt, overcome. But uh, I weighed the decision because I'm talking to all my Force Recon buddies who are either going PJ. I
1: was going to say, I'm grateful <clears> for the <comment throat> on the Marine Corps making that statement because Pararescue benefited considerably. I mean, I think like probably a third of Pararescue men in my time were either either Battalion or Force Recon Marines mm-hmm. who were, I mean, guys like John Kingsley, right? I mean, these guys are yes. freaking legends. And I, I've got them in selection with me. And Dave Schumann. Yes. Uh, Dave Schumann yep. just crushed our selection. And and I'm like, wow, I mean, check these guys out. You know, they've actually done some stuff. Uh, what was cool about Pararescue, though, is that you know, we were going to combat zones in the 90s. I mean, the very first time I ever received enemy fire was in 1998, you know, in southern Iraq. No kidding. So, yeah. We had a SEAL team there with us. But uh, Operation Northern Watch, Operation Southern Watch. Yes. uh, uh, Was it Operation Olive Branch, Operation Desert Fox, like all of those? PJs were, like, ingrained in all of them. I mean, pre-9-11, there was a time when I deployed over 300 days. Now that was because I volunteered for about every as everything you smoking going as overseas. You should. Yeah, yeah, that's how
0: you form your reputation.
1: Yeah, but and you know, I just wanted to get in the mix. I wanted to be in. I wanted to do my job. And I was at uh, Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia. Not a lot of civilian rescues going on there. You know, a couple of things off the coast, but you know, it's not exactly like it was the Alaska team. So, so I wanted to be downrange as much as possible. And I, I actually deployed more pre nine eleven than. Uh, than I did after that because in two thousand two I got tapped and told volunt told that I would go be a instructor at the P J school. Yeah. So I kinda we, we, had to go do that kinda you send your best. You gotta yep. represent you gotta be
0: yeah. the I always believe the instructors and I wrote about it in the book, you have to send your best to represent the the the, the, the community to the young kids that are trying to get in, give them the role model to, to emulate. But I I remember when we got to the recon community, it seemed like at first recon battalion all the guys wanted to like there was a few of us that wanted to go seals. Some guys wanted to go PJs. It was like you got there, you realized that there was no funding, mm-hmm. um, and there was a poster. I can't remember if it was a a PJ or a combat rescueman, um, or I'm sorry CCT, but it had all the gear around them.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, even recruiting brochures. Yeah, and, the the brochures. Yeah. <laughs> and it, we're
0: like, we actually hated you guys. We're like, how do they? That's the, the, yeah, that's the individual loadout per per operator. We're like. How is that possible?
1: So I have a funny story. Uh Gentex helmets, right? Yep. Those are what thousand bucks, something mm-hmm. like that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Expensive, expensive flight helmets, and you know, that's what PJs are wearing for our, our Halo jumps. Not the best looking thing, but boy, are they comfortable. Mm-hmm. And uh the Air Force after a period of time will actually say that the helmet is too degraded for you to use anymore. Well, you know how long, how hard it is to break in a Gentex helmet. So I took the shell of my new Gentex helmet. I took all the pads out of my old one, right? Put them in the new shell, and I threw the old shell away. And we were jumping with some uh, some force recon guys out of the um, I think it's a reserve unit in in New Mexico. Yes, right. And those guys had nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So I see this this Marine walk by the trash can in our our flight area and he looks in there and he grabs grabs the helmet and it's all beat up right and uh and he he grabs it and he takes it and puts it in his truck and i'm like oh okay he's gonna like give it to his kid or something like that right well a couple weeks later they were coming to jump with us and they jumped with us all the time because they didn't have the budget to pay the air force for the aircraft fuel to go get their halo jumps we're like yeah you guys come along with us right so we and they were good dudes to hang out with and they, they were some cool guys the guy shows up to jump with his with my old Gentex, the shell of my old Gentex, and he took a bunch of uh Protec helmet mm-hmm. pads mm-hmm. and had them all glued up in there and had this thing all jerry rigged and <laughs> I was like, Man, it's a it's a different world over there, isn't it?
0: well I remember even at SEAL team three, you've got the dermo bins and the locker rooms mm-hmm. and it's it's like Christmas oh, to yeah. a Marine. Oh yeah. And Like, I just couldn't, like, I would rummage through, even though I had all the brand new stuff, I'd rummage through and take it, and uh, I would still have friends at 1st Recon Battalion, I would just drive down and just drop kit bags, and you could not, those guys were more appreciative than anyone. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. That's the Marine Corps, man. Sometimes there's, you gotta love certain things about the Marine Corps and how they do business. But there are certain things that are like, well, it's tradition. Well, tradition is no longer relevant, and there's better ways to do business. Yeah, Outfit your people correctly. And you get a, a higher level of uh, performance. This sort of do more with less. Mm-hmm. Nah, that only goes so far, and you can only tell tell me that uh, so many times. That's what I, I love the Marine Corps. But ultimately, you know, as the war kicked off, talking to all the force buddies and the recon guys, they're like, "Bro, we are sitting doing, you know, just subpar tasks, well below our our level." Right. While the the Green Berets, the SEALs, the uh, you know, AFSOC guys are, are out there at the uh, the vanguard. And that was for me. Was I just gotten back from reading OCS? I took honor man, and uh, went to my colonel. I'm like, "Hey, I want to put an in inter service transfer." You should have heard it, you fucking traitor! Oh, I and got called it that was, when I moved to the CIA. Uh, no kidding. Yeah, uh, there was a, there was a great major at the time. He was a Mustang. Mm-hmm. Uh, 15 kids. God bless his heart. Good American. He actually had a 15 pack van. Was the family uh, vehicle. Oh dang. Oh, that he bought from uh, from government sales on on and, a
1: on a major salary. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, That's an efficient man with He finance. is, he is. <laughs> he,
0: he was a good, good uh, man. And before we stepped in, he's like, hey, just just take your lumps. And he's like, I got you. Um, but no, no, no. Proud of the Marine Corps. I didn't work with uh, PJs and CCTs because we didn't, we didn't work with them at the, uh, the Whiteside SEAL teams until I got to JSOC. And mm-hmm. I could not be more impressed with the dudes out of the 2-4, both from the PJs and the CCTs. It was just like they knew their duties in terms of technical recovery. Yeah, I know 18 Deltas, medics are, are pretty... Oh, yeah, they're super uh, squared away. Su- super squared away, but in terms of the technical recovery, like, 18 Deltas is just like, get out of the way, let the PJs do their thing.
1: Yeah, and, and I I really, you know, we've got this inner inner service rivalry, right? But I think some people take that too far. Uh, it's what, uh, you know, it, it, it's this mindset that there can only be one Person, so so you'll you'll talk and you'll see these conversations, especially online within the brovet community, right? Mm. And and there ain't no drama like brovet drama. And these guys will be like, oh well, you know, were you on this? Were you on Operation, you, you know, fortunate child? And they're like, yes. Well, were you were you on the target? Yes well, were you on the black side? No, I was on the red side. And you're like, oh, well, all the the action was happening on the black side, right? it's like, everybody's always trying to run up each other. And and I think the reality is that anybody who went through a water-based selection would have probably made it through any other water-based selection. Yes. Anybody who went through any of the land-based selections probably would have made it through any other land-based selection. Um, The water is a equalizer and it is a difference. However, that does not make one better than the other. And one of the cool things about being a PJ is I got to work with everybody. Part of the reason why I got attracted to the CIA was because there was these agency dudes that we were working with post 9-11 in Northern Iraq. Uh, Yes, there was a task force in Northern Iraq right after 9-11 I got to be on that. and we were like, who are these dudes, right? They had all the cool kit. They had all the cool stuff. And you know how it is. You're always looking for the, always looking for the red door of competence. Like where, where, where is Jason Bourne? He's gotta be around here somewhere. And so, Mm -hmm. but that was because as agency, I was working with a JSOC element and some, uh, some agency guys, Mm -hmm. but worked with SEAL teams, worked with MARSOC, actually worked with MARSOC during, or uh, I guess force recon um, during Operation Desert Fox. Uh, stellar dudes, stellar dudes, and one of the things that in Pararescue we were light on infantry skills, and that was something that the former Marines really brought to our uh, brought to the PJ teams because back then, and I think this has changed a little bit, but back then there was no you, there was no dedicated PJ mission unless it was a personal recovery specific <laughs> mission. <laughs> if it was any type of direct action, any type of operation you were a you were an attachment and in some ways that made life a little bit difficult because you were the you were the chair force guy so it didn't matter if, how fast you were how good of a shooter you were how good you were at anything you were the chair force guy and you had to prove yourself and right about the time the team was like hey you're air force you're all right you're you're doing pretty good you were out the door you know into a training cycle back out to another team lather, rinse, repeat, you gotta Mm -hmm. do the whole thing all over again, and that was tiring in some ways, but also really good, because it meant that you had to stay on your game, you had to, you had no option to kind of get lazy and, and just go with the flow now i think that changed a little bit with what the two four was doing with oh, yeah, jsoc where it was more like you kind of relationship were a dedi- based. yeah, yeah. And, and you were kind of a dedicated blue asset or a dedicated green asset for a period of time and i think that's really smart the way that they were that the, the way that they kind of re-engineered that and did that after the you war You took the words out of my mouth and it's probably you guys during the early days of the war that laid the, the
0: foundation because when guys would come in it was a very quick uh,
1: butt sniffing. The revolving door. Yep. You know,
0: they, and they were one of the boys pretty rapidly. Yeah. Now, I say that on the blue side. I remember, you know, I did tour over the green side, fortunate mm-hmm. exchange program, where I just deployed with some of uh, the PJs. Mm-hmm. And, and the green side had a different view on the PJs because they had their internal medics. Right. And um, no, bo- both great programs, but you guys always had to have a level of maturity not to rush that process and just. Sort of let your your actions speak for themselves and let the credibility build. But
1: the guys uh, were
0: rapidly integrated when I got there.
1: Yeah, and and look at some of the the people that's produced. I mean, look at like Colon Lopez uh, we were talking about earlier. Like that guy is a force of nature. Yeah, and I can't wait to watch what he do does when he retires here in October. I'm a little, I'm a little afraid of what he might do. I mean, we're talking like you know he's on a route to world domination. He's uh, you, <laughs> he's, you know, what? he's going to do amazing he amazing is, things. You, you know, make the community extremely proud. People
0: fall in love with tall, dark, and handsome. He like pretty much hits every, every category, <laughs> Puerto Rico and yeah, Puerto yeah. Rico is like holding them up on a pedestal as sort of like oh, a yeah. uh, prototypical child. Uh, he's, you know, he's going to be in front of a lot of companies talking about leadership. Yeah. So. He
1: was, and, and what a great person to do it. He was, uh, he was my team chief at the PJ school. And, and, uh, to say that when they brought him in, which is probably one of the smarter decisions the air force made was to bring him in when they brought him in and he was just an E seven at the time, uh, he, he played the political game extremely well. And he made incredibly positive changes to that place. And it was very clear that he was gonna be a force for good because the PJ School was having, um, to, uh, to put it lightly, some significant leadership challenges. Mm-hmm. And Ray, is, Ray single-handedly changed that place for the better. It was an extremely toxic environment um, during kind of the last few years that I was mm-hmm. there. And Ray, yeah, Ray came in and it, it, just from day one, he started making changes and everything just started getting positive and getting yeah. better, but you couldn't tell it was him doing it, which is how, you know, a true master of an art,
0: you know, there, his, his maturity was probably year, leap years ahead. Of leap his years, peers, decades. ahead. Which is required. Where when when we talk about politics, were. man, in, you know, our community, like, Oh, screw the politics. And it's just, that's politics. Dumb. I mean, this is a whole subset of. I, I've got a buddy who's getting a PhD in organizational politics. It's it, it's part of every organization. You said yeah. it earlier prior to uh, us hitting record is that politics are a part of every organization. You play the game, mm-hmm. or 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 die in the vine, or be a product of of whatever decision comes down. But the um,
1: well, I'm a little embarrassed to say that as a young enlisted guy. I had the I don't do the politics. I'm just here for the mission. Even, yeah. You know, it was, it was a really stupid mindset that I had. And that's also I'm, I'm sure
0: that's also some of the mentors you
1: had. Even yeah, if
0: it was the e5s above you or the e6s, absolutely trying so to I, play the tough guy, and you it sort of filters down. And you're like, oh, that's the way I need to 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 approach this. Yeah,
1: and concept. I look at some of those e6s and e7s that I had above me, and I'm, and I'm like, man, some of them actually weren't near as impressive as I thought that they were, uh, and some of them were a lot lower key a lot less bravado but they got a lot more done Mm -hmm. and right your metric changes and when i got to the agency i and and i I decided kind of at the end of my air force career right uh, pararescue you're only really going to work if something goes wrong and let's face it you might be a shooter with (laughs) another team of Mm -hmm. shooters Mm -hmm. you might even be uh, you might even be you know in the element. But you're not really a focus until things go wrong, right? And then it's all eyes are on you. Okay, now it's your mission. But if if nothing's going wrong, you're just one of the guys. And so for the pararescue community, I think that, and again, I think that's changed, but understanding that it's not about you at all until it is, and you have to be able to flip that switch take command of the situation. You have some of the best operators in the world are now looking to you to solve the problem. You solve the problem and then you release it back to them because it's no longer about you. Right. Where I think a lot of a lot of the other soft community, the, the right. You're you're a sniper. You are the mission. All support elements are to help you get into position to do the thing that you're supposed to do. Right. You're an assault force. All elements exist. To help you accomplish that mission and it's only when something goes wrong in the house right something goes wrong on the side of the ship that you actually become relevant to that mission and there i mean how many times is it that nothing went wrong that's that's extremely humbling to know that you were completely replaceable and irrelevant to that very specific mission but the few times when you are relevant you see things come together and you're like oh wait a minute that's that person gets to go home to their wife and kids. Um, I was on a road trip with my wife, uh, and we were we were in southern Colorado, the New Mexico border. There's this uh, um, truck stop there, mm-hmm. right? I think it's like right on the New Mexico side. It's yeah. like the last place to get gas right before you go over that that Raton Pass. And uh, my wife and I were going to Vail, I think. And so we stop, we get gas, we're inside getting some, you know, Lucky Chewies and Red Bulls, and and this guy taps me on the shoulder and i turn around and it's a dude that i had saved from a helicopter crash and he came up give me this freaking he's this huge like iowa corn-fed farm boy gives me this huge <laughs> hug and gets kind of teared up and he he and i was like oh you know this is my wife and, and he, he looked at my wife he said he said uh, this man saved my life he's like my wife and ki- my wife and kids get to have a dad uh, because of, because of your husband. And I was just like, well, now you're gonna make me choke up, man. Like that, th- and that's when you realize how important all those times of just sitting around bored out of your mind. Um, and you were using that time to get better at your craft. How important that was the 99%
0: for the 1%, right? 99% training for the 1% uh, right. putting it to, uh, to use. First off, if somebody came up and said that in front of my wife, I would, you know, pop it into my head. I know my wife would be looking at me differently, and I know we're gonna have a good night. Um, <laughs> the uh, not to be crude, I know we've got ladies hey, in the room. Nev- As never you get married, you, you look for ways to spice it up a little bit. Never um, underestimate
1: my ability to screw something up. Yes,
0: yes, yes. <laughs> um, then something comes out of my mouth, and it's like she's like, you know, when you're on top, you
1: had one point. Yep. And now you're negative ten.
0: You 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 bring up a a point. I think it's a rule for for life. It is never about you. It's not about you. And the second you realize that, mm-hmm. it starts to drive things differently. Mm-hmm. It goes to the old Reagan quote It's amazing what we can accomplish when nobody cares about the credit. Right. And when you know it's not about you and you understand that you are easily replaceable, mm-hmm. then you just try to drive impact around your immediate circle. And, and that will cement a legacy in its in itself. But um, you know. To our earlier conversation, I just got to interview uh, Johnny Joey Jones. You've seen him on Fox News, big guy, handsome dude, Marine, had uh, EOD tech, lost both his legs, mm-hmm. um, articulate as hell, um, and just a total product and good representation in the Marine Corps. But you know, we were talking after we were uh, recording. He's like, "Man, I struggle with modesty and humility," and and I know where he was going with this. He's like am I modest? No, I'm on TV. Just, just like you and I are Mm -hmm. in the the public light. He's like, uh, I can't say I'm modest. I work out because I know what what it takes to, to fill out my t-shirt humble. I hope so. Mm -hmm. I I hope so. And, and I know I struggle with that a little bit as we get more into the limelight. I mean, what you do, I know you, you didn't do this to get in the limelight and to to be on TV, but the more the, the deliver fun grows, you're going to have to be in the spotlight.
1: Absolutely. So I, uh, you really when you think about leadership as an example Mm -hmm. you you need to think about what is the leader's job there's lots of there's lots of philosophical pontification about leadership and this is what you should do and you should be a servant leader and it's all it's all very soft at the end of the day what is your job what is your job as a warrior what is your job as a leader your job which to, are not mutually exclusive. Not mutually exclusive at all. Um, your job is to, as a warrior, is to create other warriors. Your job as a leader is to create other leaders. And so I, I'm extremely fortunate with Deliver Fund that, yes, I'm the point man. Yes, I'm the founder. I'm the idea guy. But I'm becoming increasingly irrelevant to the organization. And I actually didn't do any media at all for five years. Mm -hmm. I didn't run any of my own social media. I I didn't do anything because, and and I did that to the detriment of the mission. So, so I think oftentimes we need to step back, especially as soft operators and look at the, look at the bigger picture and say, I may not necessarily like the media stuff, but that's what my team needs me to do. Therefore, that's what I do. No different than politics. No different than politics. You either
0: do it or you're, you're, you're going to, you're doing a disservice to your organization. And you you probably weren't doing media mainly for five years because you were heads down laying the foundation for 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 the roots of the company to grow. I
1: mean, part of it was that. Yeah. Part of it was I just didn't want to do wanna that. Do it? I, I that's not my personality. I'm not somebody who who really liked that. Uh, I spent a couple of years or, or there was about a two year period between Pararescue and the CIA, whereas in the clearance process and you know it's it's a yes. process. And I was actually working. I started a private personal recovery startup, and then I uh, did some Hollywood stuff, and worked for an A-list actor, one of the one of the biggest names in Hollywood. Uh, still a, a close personal friend, but him and a, uh, a director, very well-known director, were like, "Man, this was awesome. Loved working with you. We're going to change your life. Um, you're going to go be a big Hollywood guy." I was like, "Nope, I sure am not." And so, like, I'm in the Screen Actors Guild. And, and I don't care. I don't do anything with that. And, but I did it to my, to, to the detriment of the organization. So deliver fund would be three to five times as big now if I had not actually done the, uh, if I'd done the media stuff up front. And I think when it comes to humility, I think, you know, in your book, you, you explain how hum like you have to have competence in order to have hum- humility. Yeah. If you try to say you're humble, but you don't have any competence, you're just weak. That, that's <laughs> what that is. That, that is, that is humble. What, w- one of the best, I think, analogies for humility, and I think this is something that we need to understand as soft operators, um, comes from the original biblical Greek word for, for meek. We associate mm. in English the word meek for we, weak, yes. but the original word is pros or praus, and it actually means power under control. Right. Um, and I've heard another I, I've heard another translation and I don't know if it's right or not. I'm sure somebody in the comments will definitely correct yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. But another translation I've heard is that he who has a sword and knows how to use it, but leaves it in its sheath. sheath. And, and so that to me is the real humility. And so so let me let me posit this. When I really did some self-reflection, I realized that part of the reason that I didn't do the media stuff in the beginning and I didn't take advantage of social media and all that was actually out of arrogance because I don't have to do that. I shouldn't have to do that because I don't wanna do that, therefore I shouldn't have to do that. And, but that's what my team needed me to do. There's so, a lot of things I shouldn't have to do. Right. So, yeah, so as mind. a, yeah. So, so as the CEO founder of Deliver Fund, I'm actually becoming more and more of really our chief evangelist, pu-
0: pu- public face. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and the team. I mean, you know, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, and this place will probably run run a little smoother. <laughs> so, so the team the team's really got the ball at this point.
0: Yeah, you know, I I feel that same way though. Um, and part of it, going back to what you talked, so I call this the legacy of uh, of leadership. And uh, Rich DeVinny, who wrote the book Attributes, he was also a JSOC uh, officer, mm-hmm. um, calls it the irony of leadership is that oh, eventually you have to smart. work your way out of a job. Right. So w- when I talk to companies, I, I often talk about the legacy of leadership. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, first off, don't, don't get us wrong. Your job as a leader is to drive results. That's number one. 100%. A- and anyone who says we're not in the, 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 the profession of performance or, or objective measures, is one hundred percent wrong, right? And there's a lot of soft, touchy feely. Because uh, then, how do you know if your
1: leadership is actually working?
0: But what the biggest missed sort of understanding of a leader is, you better create the next generation of leaders. Sort of what uh, Chris Fossil, who was uh, McChrystal's mm-hmm. foremost mentee, mm-hmm. uh, you, you probably know Chris. Right? I don't know, you know him, but I know of him. I've read. He, he his penned stuff. Team of Teams, and then he wrote One Mission. You know, he calls it the uh, the art or the zen of leadership is when it's basically an unbroken chain of generational leadership. Yeah. And that's what McChrystal did. Is he trained teams so well he was no longer needed, and that they went on to train their junior, uh, enlisted or senior enlisted, their 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 officers, uh, to the point where it doesn't matter if McChrystal leaves the organization, the things are going to keep on moving.
1: Yeah, it, w- when I was at the CIA, I, you know, running a team of all former soft guys. I mean, every single person on my team had more experience than I did. Uh, Story of my was, life was you know farther. Yeah, smarter, faster, and stronger. And so I, but the the system is so broke, so everybody understands that like I'm the guy they put in charge, uh, youngest country team leader of I can't say the country, but let's just say it was a uh, a nuclear armed Islamic country of presidential importance. So I found myself on VTC's the president. You talking the about Argentina. Side. <laughs> horrible place <laughs> horrible uh all the time you know and and so here i'm briefing national security council and i'm the guy who's supposed to make decisions and i realized quickly that i was out of my depth and i had mm. to have a because because we were we were doing a lot of jsox work we were doing our work we were doing other intelligence yeah, agency yeah. work we were really the only action element on the ground and so i we were tired is really what it kind of came down to. And you know how it is, you end up with like the guys on your team that you really like and the guys on your team that you don't particularly care for. And are they competent, are they not, right? Like, how, where are your emotions getting involved? And so I, I came up with a essentially an algorithm of four things. I'm a big math guy, right? Yeah, I so tell. I came up with an algorithm of four, four decision points that I would use to filter my leadership decisions. Because these were no fail missions. I mean, these the, the kind of things that when they go wrong, it hits the news and people lose their jobs. And I'm the f- I'm I'm literally the lowest ranking guy at that table. So guess who's going to be the first head on the chopping block? It's it's this guy. It, first
0: off, the uh, mantra, uh, it's which, no fail mantra. Yeah, it's no fail. It's it is a it is like the biggest oxymoron there there is. Yeah, I mean, given mean, given give the history. I mean, you look at JSOC's – Well, it wasn't JSOC. But you look at Delta's first operation. <laughs> Eagle Claw, yeah, which you know they were devastated, but was it was a watershed moment in special operations history from which we still use standard operating procedures that were derived from from that that failure. Yeah, yeah,
1: and and so these these no fail missions to me it was it was not just that you know everyone's going to lose their careers, bad things are going to happen, but you also like we're going to lose dudes. Yeah, and I that's happened to me before. I didn't want that on my conscience anymore. And so how do I make these decisions? And if something did go wrong, if failure did happen, because failure does happen, right? If failure did happen, could I honestly look myself in the mirror and say, I made the best decision that I could given the information at the time. And so having essentially an algorithm of four points that I could just run through my head and be like, okay, am I doing this? Yes, am I doing this? Am I doing, okay made it so much easier for me to do that. But then I started teaching that to my team. I teach that to my mm-hmm. team, you know, here at Deliver Fund. I taught that to my team at, you know, my software company. And it makes it a lot easier. And now I, I, I even started using it with my family. How do I raise a son? How do I raise a daughter? How do I be the best husband I can be, you know, to my wife? How do I be the best citizen I can be to my community? And and it's, it's really helped me kind of get out of my head because I can be an overthinker and actually just start saying, okay, am I doing these things that I'm supposed to do? But by, by doing that, it allows me to just hand off responsibility, which then allows all of my people to rise up, which makes me increasingly irrelevant.
0: So the moment that sort of brought you into the human trafficking industry mm-hmm. I'm assuming that happened when you were with the agency
1: yes yeah it, it, it it's a long story over about seven years but the uh, the, the keystone moment mm. uh, was was when I was at CIAs yes.
0: and we, we can't talk about that moment but
1: we, we can talk I uh, we just can't talk about the place Yes. Uh, but essentially um, I'm in uh,
0: a place
1: I'm in a place uh, I'm in a stand we had smoking gun intel on a human trafficker and realized that there was there was no place to put that intel right you get narcotics intel that's associated with say the United States of America that yeah. goes to the DEA right you get weapons proliferation intel that you know for nukes or whatever it goes to the department of energy i mean it's it's there's, there's you know there's there's places for everything to go there's desks for everything to go and there was no human trafficking desk and so and i was actually with the tfo officer at the time mm-hmm. and and it was his case and my team was supporting his operation and between the two of us between you know his high side and and the agency high side and station and headquarters at uh assets we we could not find a place to put human trafficking intel. And and so I I ask this of every special operator, right? I mean, so here you were an officer. So at one of the most specialized military units in the world, do you ever have a target package on a human trafficker? No. Do you know anybody who ever has? Where the, the purpose of them being on a target was to go after a human trafficker? Not that I can recall. You won't find one. Yeah. And so I started started asking around the agency. Um, the cool thing about the agency and, and my teams was we were kind of one of the groups of cool guys, so I could just go to doors and knock, and they'd be like, "Oh, you want to see what we do?" And I started reaching out to all the people that I knew, and eventually found that there was a uh, under the Bush administration, uh, George W. Bush, in the office of the Under Secretary of Defense, which you know there's so that a lot of people know there's not just one undersecretary defense there's like I don't even know yes. probably hundreds yep. uh, one of the offices of the undersecretary defense there was a human trafficking and human exploitation uh, essentially analysis desk and it was manned by a, an analyst from the CIA and so I got in touch with her talked to her about it she said it was the best and most important work she'd ever done um, you, the, the desk got shut down for lack of funding she got put in CTC and that was the end of it and so she really helped me understand that nobody really had the ball on this issue right there was there was there was a ball in the field there were lots of cheerleaders there were you know the teams running around doing all kinds of things but nobody was moving that human trafficking ball into the end zone and so i just decided that had all the networks knew what to do, knew how to put it together. Um, If you look at human trafficking academically, it's an illicit commodity that's being sold on a black market. Well, that's something we understand extremely well after the war on terror. So why don't we apply those same technologies and methodologies to the fight against human trafficking? And most of what I did at the agency was working with indigenous forces. Well, if i can work with a bunch of libyans who don't like me i don't particularly care for them we have almost no values in common we don't even speak the same language and i can work with them and we can turn them into a formidable force how much more successful could we be if our indigenous force was u.s law enforcement officers mm-hmm. so we set out to equip train and advise law enforcement very quickly realized that law enforcement does not need help kicking doors or any of this stuff and it really irritates me uh, when our our soft brethren create these nonprofits and they they in their arrogance say i'm going to go help law enforcement kick doors and like man when you shot people overseas you didn't have to fill out paperwork you weren't filling you, you weren't facing murder charges most of the time these law enforcement officers are essentially guilty until proven innocent every single time they take a kinetic action against somebody their family's financial livelihood is on the line i mean it's it's a brutal job so you don't know their rules of engagement and what it is that they're supposed to do take a step back and actually help them with real problems as opposed to thinking that you know what the problems are and so even though i mean i don't know as much about kicking doors as you know some tier one operators but i've i've Got a time or two under my belt. That's yeah, not, I was there. Neither do I. So yeah. it's okay. So, <laughs> so, it's so that okay. that's that's what that's not what we help <clears throat> law enforcement officers yeah. do. Uh, we're data nerds. We have. I mean, we're, we probably. Well, it's, it's
0: the hardest piece. Yeah, and, and, and quite frankly, if you did your job right over there during the global war on terror with your proxy force, it was half the battle, or actually ninety percent of the battle. It's that building right there. Go.
1: Ninety percent of the battle is keeping them off of heroin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the other, yes. That aside, <laughs> it,
0: it, it was the can you find and fix. Yeah. And the finish, it doesn't have to be pretty. That, no, the thing we want to put an American standard on everything. Soft guys want to put a standard on, on law enforcement. They're never going to be... They're, the, number, they're the numbers good are to too big. They're, they're good. They're not at the level of soft, but we don't need them to be at the soft level. No. We're not going fact,
1: against... Didn't we fight wars to keep them from being at the soft level? It, exactly. Right? So law enforcement doesn't need help, you know, doing surveillance no. and all. I get these these, like... Hollywood guys and sports stars who were involved with the organization in the early days. And Uh, and they'd be like, oh, when are we going to go on surveillance? I'm like, man, you're just trying to scratch an action guy itch because you never did anything. And now you're trying to actually make up for that. Like, that is arrogant. Stop it. Help the law enforcement officer with what they actually need help with, which is knowing what door to kick. Like, Mm. learn to write some code. Learn to run a computer. And what that has turned into is not only direct support, analysis, uh, which our analysts actually embed in law enforcement agencies and help them actually build target packages. Cause they do have a bit of a manpower issue, but it's also resulted in now, here we are uh, you know, almost 10 years later and we've got the largest cleanest human trafficking database on the planet. And that's, what's important because that data never dies and our AI models get better and better with the more data that's in there. Uh, so so you now guys are
0: using chat GPT, I'm joking.
1: Yeah, I'm joking. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's actually great now that chat GPT is out because it gives me a proxy to explain to explain AI to people who don't otherwise understand yes, it. Yes. So, yes, it's a starting point. Yes. So <clears throat> large language model. Uh, so, so LLM AI models yes. that are that are being run on our own on our own compute. So we're not running this stuff in AWS. We work with a company, um, we actually bought the first micro supercomputer. So we have petaflops of computing power on premises. So our because again, our job as leaders is to drive results, that right there saved us about $4,000 a month just in AWS costs on the compute side. Huh. But that also means that we can, so we, we can buy that computer for six months of AWS costs and then that is now an asset that can just run in perpetuity that we can turn into doing whatever we want. So we can have it do some mobile identification data one day. We can have it run an LLM the next day. Uh, and, and ultimately, what we're talking about is a signal to noise ratio issue. Right. So people can think about it like the airwaves. There's all of this radio frequency communications that are moving through this air right now lots of noise all of it completely irrelevant because it's the wireless signal between that you know apple tv unit and that tv that actually matters to our conversation right now between these mics between your computer and this wi-fi right so it's all dialing in that signal well all the human trafficking all the data you need to fight human trafficking exists on the open internet. This is not hard stuff to find. People talk about, oh, it's all happening on the dark web or the no, it's not. This is the front facing Internet that you could find with your iPhone in the next three minutes. If you started looking for it using nothing but Google as a starting point, that's the reality of human trafficking in the United States of America. So if we have all of this data, but there's lots of noise, So we have to distill that into a signal that law enforcement can actually use, but we have to do it at scale. We can't do it in a way that causes me to have to go hire a new analyst every single time we get a new law enforcement customer. So we only have a few analysts, yet we are able to work with over 600 law enforcement agencies across the United States simultaneously, over 600, um, which seems like a lot. But there's 18,000 jurisdictions in the United States, the major majority of which are, are state and local. Mm-hmm. So it's connecting all of the state and local assets, one platform, making sure they all have the same data. That was what actually fights human trafficking at scale. So you started Deliver Fund in 2014, is that right? I started it in 2012. Um, one-man operation? Just, just one-man operation on my you know non-deployed time or out of my out of my chew and wherever I was, uh, that's what I worked on when other guys were playing Xbox.
0: (laughs) I'm sorry, deliver fund
1: the, the meaning behind it. So the original biblical Greek word for, uh, rescue translates as deliver, right? Deliver me from from evil, evil actually is rescue me from evil. And then what I realized is that everything that you need to fight human trafficking existed. You just had to fund it. So deliver fund. Um, so, I mean, it's, this is my observation, not being
0: in the industries, it seems like human trafficking is now becoming the hot topic. I understand during the global war on terror, it was not the primary focus, right? But it seems like you have a lot of people jumping on board,
1: which, right. which is, is awesome, thing, which is great
0: th- uh, awareness.
1: Mm-hmm. Give in, me, in fact, like, I'll even tell you that we have a lot of people who contact me and say, I want to start a deliver fund type organization. And what's cool about the nonprofit community is it's it unfortunately it can be extremely competitive because people don't understand that money is actually an unlimited resource. So they think they're competing for donors and they're not, I mean, I left war and I thought the nonprofit community was going to be all puppy dogs and rainbows and I didn't realize it was going to be a knife fight in a phone booth. Yes. But we actually help other organizations start their own deliver fund like organization because you I mean yes you could build what we built it would take you eight years and probably four and a half million dollars just to get started so what do you start chapters so it's not really chapters what we do is like if you want to start your own deliver fund Mm -hmm. cool well I will actually walk you through that and what you do is you um, we give you once we essentially clear you right we we do some pretty uh in-depth investigations into the individuals but once we we know that we can trust them then they get access to the same technology platforms that we give to law enforcement so Mm -hmm. they get access to that data they don't have to worry about that uh unfortunately I've learned more about nonprofit law than I ever wanted to know so I help between myself and and my co-founder Sean we will help them kind of build their organization. And now they essentially become a fob where they can be out there running and doing their own thing because I can't build relationships with 18,000 no. law enforcement agencies across the United States, but I can enhance everybody else's ability to do that.
0: Uh, the power of a network. Yeah. it's Yeah. Let's go with, uh, again, for the, uh, the listeners and the, uh, the viewers, in terms of human trafficking, 101. I know we traditionally think there's this girl in Russia that yeah. is taken, you know, taken captive, shipped to the U.S. and then pushed into the uh, the sex trade.
1: A la the movie Taken, yes, but in reverse. It,
0: but it, it goes much deeper than that, and there's yeah. several forms of human trafficking. Just sort of for for a layman, what what are the sort of primary sources of what falls under the bucket of human trafficking besides the the typical model?
1: So the way that I like to explain human trafficking in its irreducible minimum mm-hmm. is when a person is being either defrauded, forced or coerced into providing labor for the economic benefit of somebody else. So it's a person who's being forced to do something for somebody else's benefit, somebody else's economic benefit. They don't keep the proceeds of their labor. So one of the biggest, confusions is between prostitution and human trafficking right prostitution is real there are women not not again
0: not mutually exclusive
1: yeah not mutually exclusive but it's real there are women and you know some men who choose for whatever reasons to sell their bodies for the use of other people but they get to keep the proceeds of their labor right they get Mm -hmm. to keep the money they earn so to speak now why they do those things there's people with letters behind their Mm -hmm. name who can explain all that right that's that's not my fight Human trafficking is again it's a labor or service for somebody else's economic benefit. Oftentimes that labor or service might be commercial sex in nature and it appears to be prostitution, but it's not. That person is not willingly there yes. doing that. Gotcha. So it's what not making with prostitution
0: choice. is it's willing versus right. sort of the
1: complaint. One one is a choice, one is somebody who's being forced to do something. Because at the end of the day, even if you say, you know, fraud or coercion. It starts in fraud or coercion, but it always, always ends up in force. And there's a psychological
0: component to this, to where that person who is forced then becomes a
1: so, facilitator. Yeah, they can become a facilitator. What what is called a bottom. Uh, so traffickers essentially will have a, a a victim who starts to participate in the business of human trafficking in order to get better treatment from the trafficker. After a period of time that girl essentially becomes the business manager the coo for the trafficker and it's a business and i think part of the things that's made us extremely successful in the fight against human trafficking is i'm an economics nerd Mm -hmm. so i look Uh, at everything through the lens of you know market economics and so we actually work to disrupt the economic chain right the commerce chain of the human trafficking market, as opposed to just go after one human trafficker. So understanding how all of this works, overlaying data on top of it, and then throwing AI models at the data so that they can help you find the signal faster is what makes is what makes the whole thing work at scale 24-7, 365.
0: So, there, I mean, this is psychological manipulation almost along the lines of like Stockholm
1: syndrome? I, I think that's I think that's the closest proxy. I've yeah. had a couple of PhD psychologists explain it to me, but I don't understand it well enough to explain it back to you. Uh, but yes, I think the that was closest, the closest
0: honest answer anyone's ever given me. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think the I closest, would butcher this. Yeah, yeah, the closest proxy is Stockholm syndrome type of thing. But but think about it this way, uh, because uh, people, most people, your average human especially in the United States of America, does not have a proxy for trauma. Most people have not experienced true trauma. If you you know women who've been sexually assaulted one time and they have psychological issues because of that, right? And that's, that's completely understandable. You know women who've been physically assaulted, right, violently one time and they have problems from that. You know women who have been emotionally manipulated mm. right and emotionally abused and they have psychological problems with that human trafficking victims have all of those things wrapped in to one package plus a opiate addiction usually thrown on top of that and the traffickers will purposely uh, get their victims hooked on very high levels of heroin and, and it's a business decision for them uh, and the reason why is because heroin withdrawals are not lethal, but what human trafficking victims have told me is that the, the pain of a heroin withdrawal is is significant I've heard to the point that when they get dope sick, they will do anything Death. that the trafficker wants them to do in order to get that fix. Fixed. And it doesn't require the trafficker to, to abuse the product to make the product less desirable to the customer. They don't have to beat them even though they do and they do some terrible things to them, but that's not something they have to do. But there's a more sinister side of the choice for heroin. When the girl gets out of line and the trafficker wants to make an example of her to the other girls, he gives her what they call a hot shot. So we have these these trafficking victims that we've worked with um, and that have been rescued from law enforcement operations who who were addicted to extreme amounts of heroin but didn't know how to actually prepare the heroin or even shoot themselves up because the trafficker or the trafficker's business manager at the bottom would, actually, would always do that and kept them reliant. Mm-hmm. Well, now the trafficker wants to make an example of her, wants to kill her, so he gives her a hot shot, kills her by ODing her on heroin. Law enforcement gets into the hotel room because somebody calls in a bad smell and they see what sure looks like a hooker with a heroin needle in her arm. Oh, just another dead heroin whore, case closed. Trafficker doesn't get investigated for the murder. Mm. So, so understanding those types of sinister decisions that the trafficker is making from a from a and, and that is a business decision. Call it, you know, it, it's it's sinister. It is evil. It is disgusting. But it is a business decision. When you start to look at it through that lens, you can start to understand. Okay. Now that we understand this, we know how to counter it, we know how to fight it, we know what to look for to help law enforcement be able to essentially find that signal and do their job better, faster, and cheaper. And human trafficking extends to just
0: manual labor as well. It extends to manual
1: labor, it extends to organ harvesting, even though there's a lot of conspiracy theories around that. Um, we saw some, uh, we were working with the Ukrainians before the war and we saw some pretty nasty, uh, organ harvesting stuff happening. Uh, if you're a Russian oligarch and you've got a child with a a bad heart and you need a, a, um, genetically compatible heart transplant, maybe you give your biomaterials to somebody in Ukraine who then grows a baby. Um, but that, that's not the predominance of our fight. I think it's extremely important for everybody to understand, especially fathers and mothers to understand that, you know, like the conspiracy theories around things like adrenochrome and things like that, like they're not real. They're not real. Adrenochrome, you can buy it online for like, it's like $11 a milligram, right? It's just, it's not real. What is real is the human trafficker contacting your daughter who's 12 years old on TikTok and manipulating her while she is under your roof. That is the reality of human trafficking in the United States of America, not somebody grabbing your kid so that they can drink their blood like that. That's not real. Um, the, the, the trafficking that happens in the United States of America is predominantly happening from from the top of the sales funnel for the human trafficker that sales funnel happens on social media just like it does on everybody else.
0: That's the number one funnel.
1: Number one funnel is social media that's, accounts. That's and it's, it's, it's all the big names. And, it's, and, and this is not to demonize these social media companies. Like we work with one of the biggest ones uh, in the world. They are trying their best. They just have a scale issue. And they are not incentivized to put the same level of resourcing behind that issue as they are say, money laundering where we actually have some regulations on what they have to do around payment systems. So our goal for DeliverFund is to enhance the system's ability to work. It's not to replace the system. It's to help industry do a better job of denying their payment platform, their social media platform, their transportation platform to human traffic, right, getting, uh, creating as much market friction as we can. And the the human traffickers who figure out how to navigate that market friction, well, we're there to help law enforcement be able to arrest them and then help prosecutors be able to put together a good case and help juries understand what was really happening. And that is a slow process that happens over a generation. But it's working. It's working extremely well. And, you know, thanks to the the people who who donate their their hard earned money to deliver fund, uh, we're able to do it at a at a significant scale. And, that, and that's the biggest problem that law enforcement has in the, the fight against human trafficking. If we can make every human trafficker glow green right now, there's not enough law enforcement officers to actually be able to do anything about much of it. So we've got to enhance the system and the few law enforcement officers that are doing incredibly heroic and good work, we've got to enhance their ability to close cases better, faster, and cheaper, just like we do with anything else in industry.
0: Law, law enforcement is often the, uh, the butt or the focus of a lot of criticism and they're not resourced to, they to are.
1: Go. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, you look at what a street detective does and you look God at what me. a, a intelligence officer in, you know, pick your intelligence agency yeah. does on the street. You look at what I was doing. I had the world at my fingertips. Mm-hmm. I mean, a couple, mi- a, a couple million yeah. dollars yes. wasn't even like i didn't need permission for that it's a rounding error Yeah. yeah law enforcement officer street detective he's paying 20 bucks out of his own pocket for information from some junkie on a street corner when you look at what law enforcement does with the lack of resourcing and training they get it is heroic it is absolutely amazing think about this as a young pj Right? Which meant that I met, I put the beret on my head. I get to my team, and my first uh, my first team leader uh, put some humility in me real fast. Day one, he said, "Congratulations, you have met the bare minimum standard. You now have nowhere. You, you ha- only have up to go from here." So you, you get these soft guys who are like, oh, "I was a SEAL," and you, you always know them, or "I was a PJ" or whatever. Like you know, they're always like everywhere they go. SEAL tridents on their jacket, and that's it. Oh, God, yeah. Or or the the PJ Flash is on their jacket, and that's it, right? And they're still talking about the good old days. Well, okay, congratulations. You met the bare minimum standard. I know a SEAL who was in the same period of time as I was, never deployed to combat, not a single time. I know a PJ, uh, multiple PJs, actually, who never deployed to combat, not a single time, because the team didn't trust them to do that. All they did was meet the bare minimum standard. So we have to understand that in the process of meeting the bare minimum standard of pararescue, there was more money invested in me in just that process than there is a law enforcement officer through the entirety of a 30 to 40 year career. And and then we and and we expect them to be everything from social workers and psychiatrists to door kickers. And they they rarely get to rarely get to focus. So I've really it in in doing this work kind of become very admirable of law enforcement because when you, again, when you look at what they do with the lack of resourcing and training that they get, it, it, it's nothing short of heroic. And then let's, let's, let's take something even farther. You knew you might die. You might become maimed or something like that, right? But statistically, the chances were low. Think about this. Law enforcement officers who fight child exploitation and human trafficking end up with psychological issues that you and I couldn't even imagine, right? I, I remember kids' stuff overseas, and, and to, it doesn't haunt me, but it, it you know, it, hit you. It, it it pops up every yeah. once in a while on the head. These law enforcement officers are seeing that at scale, in aggregate, and, and what causes the what's called vicarious trauma uh, with within the law enforcement community is the aggregate exposure to this stuff. So here's the thing about these law enforcement officers that everybody needs to understand. These law enforcement officers that are fighting child exploitation and human trafficking, they know that they are gonna end up with psychological issues and they choose to do it anyway. Would you make that choice? That's courage. That is, that is the absolute definition of courage. And so one of the things that our technology is really focused on is reducing the aggregate exposure to the law enforcement officer so that instead of looking having to look at 100 images to find all the clues they need, they have to look at two. That's, that's saving marriages. That's saving relationships with children. That's keeping law enforcement officers from committing suicide because they can't just, they can't turn off the, the, the violent imagery that's happening in their brains all the time because of the constant exposure. And so that's that's another one of our focuses is to really protect the brain of the law enforcement officers so they can choose to go do this incredibly heroic work Mm. and not have uh, deleterious lifetime effects from Mm. you know
0: the 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 word or the phrase that comes out of my mouth when dealing with law enforcement is thank you for protecting my family. Absolutely. Bottom line. We go over there for eight months, six months, maybe four months, even three, three week deployments. But they have a day in and day out Ooh, for, and also- for, for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. That's yeah, that's trauma.
1: And I don't care how much training I have. Uh, when I was over there, there's nothing I could do to help my family if something went wrong. Mm. A law enforcement officer was standing watch. Yeah. While while I was over there doing that stuff. So. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, the the problems we're solving for law enforcement are significant, uh, and it's a second order effect of solving the human trafficking problem, and then illicit commodities writ large, right? Because the black box we're building and the black box we have built will work for many other things than just human trafficking. It's funny how that works. Yeah, right. Is that,
0: I mean that that's the, the space race? Mm-hmm. How much you know evolution, science, technology came out of uh, of that that we utilize, tang right tang. Tang. we got tang which is awful <laughs> but hey that's a different discussion um so you ultimately you could have done this you could have went the government route and tried to build this capability within the government but what i've seen a lot and this is what i love about the soft guys that get out or even military guys that get out they're like i can actually do more outside the system yeah more efficiently more effectively more rapidly than i can within
1: I actually could not have built this inside the government and there's, there's two reasons for that
0: too many barriers to, there's,
1: there's no bucket of money mm -hmm. to fight human trafficking, but let's just say, I, I could get everybody aligned and I could get a bucket of money. I'm not going to be able to compete with Blackbird, Dyncore and and Boeing and all the, the defense industrial complex. That's going to take what should have only cost $20 million (laughs) and they're going to turn it into a $20 billion project. Like that is a real problem that our government faces on a day-to-day basis, and so by doing this in the pri- in the private sector, and part of the reason why I very strategically chose to do this as a nonprofit is because there's no exit. There is no ability for Deliver Fund to be turned to doing something other than its core mission, which is fighting human trafficking. And you know how mission creep, mm. scope creep happens. Mm-hmm. Sig- I mean, w- within the Regardless government, all of the the time. profession, and then yep. you get some. You know, new presidential election. You know, I was on a, a covert action platform uh, for the very, f- it was my first job at the CIA. A uh, very, very cool mission. Uh, Obama got elected. Three days later, he rescinded the finding and that whole package packed up and was out in a week.
0: Yeah.
1: So you're at the whims of the politicians. I don't have to worry about that. So there's a lot of freedom that comes from doing that now. I think the biggest things that soft operators and government employees in general deal with is the the courage to deal with the unknown of the civilian world. Because once you get in, you don't have to worry about where, where your paycheck is coming from, where your medical is coming from, right? You, you really support system that amazing. exists. You really don't have to be concerned about the day to day life. You get to focus on your job. Well, you get out. You have to focus on revenue, Ugh. which is something you've never had to do before. You might understand a little bit about leadership, but you don't know how to run a PL. and And I don't care if you managed a $400 billion budget. You didn't have to figure it's out where, the to get, yeah, where to, to get the $400 center. billion. Dollars. And so so I actually went back to school because I went back to grad school because I just was like, man, I'm out of my depths here, and I got to go, go get taught some stuff, and I need to do this as fast as possible. Now, I didn't finish my graduate degree, because once I, fin- once I, once I felt like I had as much information as I needed, um, I raised venture capital to start a software company and it just didn't really make sense to continue. So it was the first thing in my life I ever quit. It was the hardest, easiest decision I ever made. <laughs> I, w- I went and got my MBA towards the tail end of my career. Nice. I was like thirty,
0: thirty-eight, thirty-nine, 38, 39, the oldest guy in the MBA program. But, uh, but you uh, made
1: uncle sugar pay for it. I did. That's, that's I did. Important.
0: And, uh, there's one word that came out of my mouth, like as I was going through the the, the program was "fuck," <laughs> like we were good at what we did, yeah. And now this is a complete and other set of skills that I'm like, okay, this is going to be a rough go. And funny enough, like you put me in a bad situation on the battlefield. One, there's a there's a comfort when you're surrounded by like Chaos. forty, sixty, eighty dudes oh, yeah. that I'm like, actually, I'm in the safest place in the world. Yeah, One, I'm an officer, and they have me at the the, the tail end, uh, far from the uh, the rounds being flown. But um, I started to develop anxiety because now I'm worried about where's the paycheck coming? Am I going to hit payroll for my people, which is mm-hmm. sort of my biggest thing. I'm like, oh, it, 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 I don't know why it would a be leader, the biggest point the of biggest embarrassment thing. for me because I would feel like I'm letting them down as a leader. That's just merely coming from the uh, the military. But, you know, you have to be in the system. And in all, how long were you in government? Uh, 17 and a half years 17 and a half years you've got to be in there for a while Mm -hmm. in order to appreciate the private sector and how much better they can solve the nation's problems I'm a a believer in small government it is an industry we know that a certain side is trying to grow it now organizations like CIA yes a lot of funding a lot of manpower but there's other things like the VA a lot of good people in the VA sure. but privatize health care Absolutely. Get rid of this system. Give it to the private se- the sector and say, "Hey, solve this," and you'll be surprised how quickly they do.
1: Privatize everything in the government that does not restrict somebody of their liberty. So, if you have to carry a gun in anger, you should be a government employee. I'm completely against the blackwaters of the world. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. I just said it. Um, but everything else, your logistics, your supply chain, your like, privatize that because I mean, and the the agency. The CIA is the king of using private. I mean, they have their own venture capital firm for crying out loud. I mean, they they are they are they are the kings of using private industry and kind of always have been because they've had the latitude to do that. It's not a jobs program. It's a place that accepts one percent of the people that that they you know, that they're interested in. So so
0: I could I could only imagine the Utah guys sort of laugh at the di it was at diu it used to be a diux yeah. now they're like oh no no, no that's pretty cool guys yeah, awesome yeah software yeah. and all those
1: things are doing it they're they're doing a great job and they're I trying know. to work in the right within way within the but, restra- constraints that they have but the difference is the the incutile guys are properly incentivized they're not on a gs pay scale they're venture capitalists doing venture capital things and so the outcome is going to be and, and has already proven to be significantly better than what you're going to get at the DIU. And look at the, you know, despite the military's and, and, you know, SOCOM and JSOC are trying really hard, but they keep bringing in these civilians and expecting them to mold into government service and it's oil and water. These these folks never last, and they always end up leaving to spend more time with their family or something like that. But it's it's really, it, it's because the, the military in general, and I think I'm painting with a broom here, does not, it's not a culture of innovation. And in the private sector, it is a culture of innovation. And meritocracy. Yes. For, for, Let's
0: be honest. Whenever you are a government employee, there are people that will just ride the coattails of others. Or, hey, I've got tenure. It's almost like higher education. I've got tenure. I don't need to work hard anymore. That's your job. Yeah, I have
1: arrived, and and it, so and and the the proof of the meritocracy in the commercial sector is is undeniable. One of my favorite examples of that is a friend of mine um, guy who started a, a company called valuetainment uh, Patrick bet David and, and Patrick <laughs> I've met him, I've met him. Yeah. yeah Patrick is an amazing human and he is he is a he is not a um, he, I don't know if he's a billionaire he's probably darn close if he's not already yeah. uh, but he's not your typical kind of billionaire right you're talking about a guy with no pedigree refugee. Iranian-American, right? Yeah, Iranian-American, refugee, like was in a refugee camp in Germany, comes to the U.S., floundering around a little bit, I think fails at a community college, I think he says, with a a 1.8 GPA, and now... Not a lack of capacity or aptitude, it was just a lack of focus. And now has one of the fastest growing media companies in the world. To include an insurance company, right? Yeah, had the insurance company, which I think he just took a big exit from. Good on. Um, So... But he's, he's somebody who, I mean, I'm a Harvard grad. I learned more from a dinner with Patrick than I learned going to one of the top Ivy league institutions in the country. Like that, that right there highlights what the commercial sector is. So getting into the CIA, they love their Ivy league folks, right? They love the right pedigree every, every, and all so that So the stuff. CIA
0: more than, than, more than, than anybody, but the seals had a problem with this.
1: They, they. The, I, I think, I think you always have these cycles that happen mm-hmm. where they think these are the people we want because we're always trying to find that red door of competence, and then they realize it's not. Patrick never would have even been considered mm-hmm. for the agency, right? But because they would be looking at like his academic test scores and stuff. But could you imagine how much impact for good a guy like that could have within government service? And the the problem is the government hasn't. 1950s way of thinking about merit, and they're not thinking about it through the lens of the way that everybody else is doing it today. And and that's, I think ultimately, and and I think that's irrecoverable. I don't I don't think that so that changes.
0: Actually, value Some guys asked me to come out to to consider me for a show. So did not have a great meeting with uh, PBD. Right? With um, okay. No, no, no. And in his his staff, and particularly one of his guys and I didn't hit it off. Um, And I still, I highly respect what he's built. I highly respect his drive. What they wanted was they wanted me to play to the lowest common denominator, the soft community of like, they started throwing names out in Hollywood. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And there's better people for that. There's other guys that can do. Like I've got a brand and uh, I think you're, you're, you're falling into that Hollywood type and I'm not like controversy. I'm I'm not going to do controversy. I don't need to, but um, no, that just one interaction i still respect the guy and what he's doing it seems like they're 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 they're, they're crushing attraction. it
1: and and the ability to think down the chessboard to be you can't be a professor and a tiktok star at the same time right there are things that are mutually exclusive uh, unless you
0: are uh god who's the uh huberman huberman or uh why am <laughs> i like friedman uh, <laughs> any of Lex those friedman, guys yeah and um
1: Jordan, Jordan Peterson, thank you. Yeah, The
0: three exceptions to the rule. A, a
1: few of those guys have yeah. figured it out, right? But but by and large, you, you violate the trust of the audience when you're trying to do too many things at once, right? I think mm-hmm. it was Colin Powell who said that a sure sign of mediocrity is trying to please everybody, mm-hmm. right? You, if you try to sell to everyone, right, you sell to no one. Right. So one of the examples I like to use, and I know they can be controversial and some people like them and some people don't, but is Black Rifle Coffee. They purposely alienate probably 70 to 80% of the coffee drinking market. How's that working out for them?
0: Extremely well. Extremely well,
1: right? They are not no, trying no, it, to please it, everybody.
0: It's, it's a know your base. Right. Know right. your audience extremely well. If you don't know your customer base, then you, you are, you're basically throwing a, you know, a dart with yeah. a blindfold on.
1: And, and so, yes, there are the Jordan Petersons. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Hubermans exist. The Lex Friedmans exist. Assume you're not them right so so pick pick something get really good at it one of the things that was actually a detriment to uh it is both a good and a bad for pararescue is we dig lots of shallow holes we're really right there's a few of them that are pretty deep right the combat medicine side i'll put you know on a target i'll put a pj toe-to-toe with anybody on the planet right Yeah, yeah but on sick call on a fob pj may not be right if it burns when you pee they may not be your best guy um, get, get yourself an 18 delta but th- the rope rescue side the halo side like all those different things and then guys will PJs will take one of those holes and then choose to dig it deeper but you can't be an expert at all those things at once so look at the guys who were you know halo track guys like Andy right? look at the things that they did in the skydiving Stump. community yeah he's really right? not that good at skydiving no i'm joking he's i was gonna say so he's he gives, I, me, he gives a me a of, of he's he he a, a, a lot, lot shit. better better than i No, he's, was. He, he's
0: and he's one of those guys he, there was a guy named Derek benson he was killed on uh extortion 17 alongside uh two pjs yeah I, I had the privilege of meeting uh zerby's parents yeah and you talk about good americans that still are like we're so proud of our son and we love this country yeah and I, like i'm i had a this thick copper band on it was extortion seventeen the date, and I just took it off and I gave it to the father, and he gave me the one he was wearing. But um, Andy, Derek, there's these certain guys that pick up everything. Like it just seems it's like, just it's, like it just I'm happens. Like, I, I freaking hate you. I know because it takes me probably twenty you know attempts. Pistol was the perfect one. We were talking about Roger Sparks, who <laughs> is a legend in the recon community now, the P.J. community. You said he was a sniper, you know, perfect scores on the long rifle. Like, like Peter, gets a pistol. I was the same way. Yeah. And now I'm good with pistol. Like to the point where I was, you know, when you go to Shaw's uh, right. mid-south, I was on that whatever board. Gun sight, every whatever. Every time, yeah.
1: yeah. But it it, it it changes because I think what happens is you have people who are just naturally good mm-hmm. at things. I mean, I can think of a hundred PJs yes. who, yep. who I would work really, really hard to beat them in, on our squadron PT test, right? They were hungover, hadn't trained in a week, and I was I – was, I was making sure everything was dialed in just so I could beat them when they were barely trying. We, we can all think of those guys, but work ethic will overcome talent every single time. And having a strategy will overcome talent every single time. So I was preparing myself. I didn't know it was for Deliver Fund, but I knew it was for tech. So I get these guys who I used to serve with reaching out to me being like, dude, where'd you learn all this computer stuff? I'm like, remember how you were giving me crap for being in my chew reading books when you guys were all playing Xbox? Yeah. That's why, you know, how, how did you, how did you get into this school? How did you do this? I'm like, well, remember when you guys were always, you know, saying I needed to go, you know, do more family time with the team or whatever. I need to go out to the bar or whatever. That I was preparing for this. So I am literally a decade ahead of you because I was spending my time in preparation, not in comfort. And I think that is the, I I think that's the the deciding factor. And so in many ways, I'm glad that God did not bless me with more talent because I would have been able to rely on it. And I wouldn't have had to learn how to put in the reps to actually get good at something and how to craft a strategy. Cause I'm not somebody who could just learn something off the bat, right? I got to craft, okay, I want to learn about AI. I actually have to put together my own curriculum to figure out how I'm going to teach myself AI. You know what courses I'm going to take because I'm not just going to pick it up off, you know, off the bookshelf.
0: I like to say comfort is a disease that uh, attacks learning and, uh, and growth. But so I suffer from this 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 same thing, and I say suffer is, you know, my wife says, okay, you got to put it down now. You gotta stop working. It's Saturday, <laughs> Sunday. You gotta stop sure. working. Yeah. And, and like I'll try to sneak off to my office, and she'll come in and and bother me until I, until I stop. But what I've seen amongst high performers, and, and dude, your your leagues ahead of me, is that when you select a, a, a ridge line, I always use the ridge line analogy. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. the next ridge line? You get to that ridge line, and you find no joy in attaining that goal whatsoever. You look back on the journey, and you're like, man, I learned a lot, but immediately. You don't even celebrate or you, you maybe, you know, say, hey, yeah, we did it. And then you're like, what's the next rid line? Ridgeline? Right. And for a lot of guys in soft, they're like, hey, dude, just take a moment to celebrate. Right. But, you know, within any community, and soft is elite, there's still the 1% or the 10%. Right. And it's so funny when you look at uh, Heraclitus with a quote yeah, yeah. about 100 people on the battlefield. Have you guys heard this? Oh, yeah. You're talking to pre, you know, you know uh, Ionian philosopher, pre-BC, and he talked about hundred people on the battlefield. And he said ten don't even deserve to be there. Eighty right. are targets. Uh, bless the nine, for they make the battle. But one, one brings us home. Right. He was talking about power's law or Pareto's principle mm-hmm. all the way back then.
1: Population distribution curves apply to all populations. I don't care. I mean, if there there's four people in this room, the population distribution curve applies. There is a there is a you know there's a tail, there's a lead, mm-hmm. and there's the middle. And th- I think what what it just depends on what you're putting it to. So, are you putting it to work ethic? Are you putting it to strategy? Are you putting it to talent? I know a lot of yes. very hardworking men because I've primarily worked with men my whole life, right? That are they have an ex- extreme work ethic, but they have no strategy. So they so <laughs> yes. they confuse movement for progress and uh. they just run in circles. I know lots of very talented people who can't get out of their own way and are extremely unsuccessful despite the The buckets of talent that they have, Um, right? And I know lots of people with a very strategic mind who can't execute yeah they just can't get anything done they're always getting the next degree and i've fallen into that a little bit right they're always getting the next degree. Oh, I've, fallen, I've, always, I've fallen
0: into all those buckets at yeah least once and, or
1: twice and so i think the self-reflection of going okay where am i failing myself because you know we talk about leadership a lot and we always think that leadership is sacrificial and i have i've have done this to my own detriment and i'm i'm uh, you know self-corrected but we always think that that leadership is, self, is sacrificial and one of the things You know, Patrick told me, he said, Nick, when you're always using your Legos to help everybody else build their castles, they'll end up with castles and you end up with no Legos. And so when we are leading, we have to understand that the very first thing that we have to apply our leadership principles to is ourselves. Leadership does not start externally, it starts internally. That's something I never learned in the military. It's something I
0: learned way too late way too late. I was in the best physical shape when I left JSOC. Mm -hmm. I was emotionally and spiritually bereft. So the whole leader leaders eat last is just, we we know that it's driven into you. Yeah. you the guys are going to see you do it. Your reputation is based on it. It's people throw servant leadership out there all the time. I'm, I'm getting tired of the word. It's almost like transformational leadership. It's just a, it's a buzzword, but, um, I didn't realize that until late in my career, to the point where I basically suffered executive burnout.
1: Yeah. Well, what, I, what I figured out on servant leadership is that there were precursors to that that we were never taught. So, the first thing, like, you know, what's a leader supposed to do? The very first thing is to, you know, establish, cultivate, and maintain a culture of trust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got to have that first, right? But that mm-hmm. also applies with yourself. You have to trust yourself to do the thing that you're supposed to do. Then you have to trust your team and all that. Right beyond that, you have to maintain standards, discipline and mission focus. So standards, discipline and mission focus apply to yourself. What is your standard? Have you written it down? What is your discipline to that standard? What is your mission? And are you solely focused on that? So when my mission was GWAT, my mission was be a good operator. My mission was fight against human trafficking. What about these two little kids and my wife? No, that's my mission. Everything else is secondary, right? What about my relationship to God? That is my mission. Everything else is secondary. So, so it changes. Then you've gotta manage talent and egos. Well, talent <laughs> and ego applies to yourself as well. You have talent and you have ego, and if you think you don't have ego, then you probably have the biggest ego of all. So how are you managing that? Is it a personal ego or is it a collective ego, right? The people within Deliver Fund's a great example. Incredibly egotistical. Collectively, They will go to war for the organization and for the mission, but not personally. Both, both,
0: both a strength right? and a potential weakness.
1: And yep. only after you've established trust, right? Discipline, mission focus, standards, managed talent and ego, only then can you serve. Because what happens if you haven't done those things first and you're a servant leader, well, we have another analogy for that. It's called being a doormat. And that's, you know, I've gotten myself into some trouble and and kind of had to figure out how do I make decisions in a way, hold myself accountable, hold my family accountable, hold my team accountable. And if I do those things and I do them in that order, then I can serve. Now it comes most important, what is, uh, and, and as a medic, you learn that a lot of the things that you do and a lot of procedures you do are not actually correcting problems. They're diagnostic in nature. Mm-hmm. I stick a needle in your chest because I think you have attention pneumothorax. I don't get any pressure relieved. You don't have attention pneumothorax, most likely, right? Unless the needle's plugged. So if I'm doing these things and I'm not getting the results I want, well, now I have an algorithm that I can run in reverse to figure out where I'm making a mistake. Am I not properly serving and resourcing my team? Am I not properly managing talent and egos? I don't have the right butts in the you know, right seat on the right bus. Did I not establish a standard, maintain a discipline to that standard and focus on the mission? Does my team not trust me? Do I not trust them? So you can constantly go through this cycle. And I think by, by having principles that you focus on that are the irreducible minimum that apply to all aspects of your life, you can keep yourself out of that executive burnout. Cause you can say, wait a minute, I am a great example. I'm in combat, leading a team, my second deployment as a a staff officer at the CIA, um, was going through an absolutely horrific divorce. Mm, Been there. Nobody on my team knew it. Nobody on my team had any clue. That is the wrong answer. Somebody on my team should have known so they could be watching my back to make sure that I didn't just get off of a call, a sat phone call with a divorce attorney, get some really bad news, and then turn around and go out on a combat operation and possibly make a bad decision because it was emotionally charged from the call. So I was not properly holding myself to my standard and my discipline because I told everybody on my team, you got something personal going on? Let, Let me, me know, know about I it. I want to be there for you, let's, so let's I can, figure this out. Yeah, so I
0: can help you, right? How, how often we put something out and then don't follow that piece of advice. Right. Um, I, it's it's pure stubbornness and it's, if I do acknowledge that, that's weakness that's that's the traditional sort of, train Absolutely. of thought
1: but but it I would actually say it's weakness to not acknowledge it and my burnout was
0: right when my divorce happened right at my 17 year mark as I was going on my last two combat deployments yeah um, as we, we sort of close this out one um, really two questions you, so Jim I always m- mess up his last name uh, Kazil Kavil, with a new movie coming out uh, oh yeah uh, sound yeah. of freedom so I'm sure there's some benefits to that, some pros that sure. it's gonna create more awareness. Absolutely. I'm sure the Hollywood effect will create some probably misnomers. Um, it seems like he's making a lot of noise with this. Mm-hmm. One, he's financially backed it. He's raised a lot of money., mm-hmm. uh, what are the potential effects you see from from this movie coming out?
1: Both good and bad. Uh, so uh, I don't know any of the people involved and really mm-hmm. have a dog in the fight. Um, uh, you know, uh, we work with law enforcement all over the United States. I've never worked with law enforcement who also worked with that organization. So I can't really speak to the movie itself, right? Um, I'm very happy that there's we're talking more about this human trafficking mm-hmm. issue, uh, and it's not just child trafficking. It's human trafficking. But let's face it, if we're going to prioritize our, our time and efforts, we should probably prioritize it on the children. So I, I'm very happy about all that. My concern is the uh, – and I'm going to use the word conspiracy theories, which I think is over, overly used these days. Uh, it seems like when somebody finds something they don't agree with, they just immediately call it a conspiracy theory. But there's some, some conspiracy theories that – and this is very important for parents. So if you're a parent listening to this, listen up there's not a white van with free candy painted on the side that's coming through your neighborhood to steal your children do abductions happen yes but they are they're relatively rare they are as much as you may not like her hillary clinton is not drinking the blood of children in her Mm. basement like that's not real are there tribes in africa and other places in the country or other places in the world that do some really nasty stuff around human rituals and sacrifice and all that yes but those are those are exceptions to human trafficking there's this conspiracy theory around this chemical called adrenochrome which is basically just what happens to adrenaline when it oxidizes it's a very simple chemical process that I, I've literally heard people say that it's 10 times more powerful than heroin and it you know makes you look younger none of that is true and the math proves it right? The thing about chemistry is it's math uh, and mathematically like that just doesn't work. You can buy adrenochrome online. It's like 11 to $20 a milligram. It's, it, it doesn't really have a lot of value outside of research. So those, those are all conspiracy theories and they're just not true. Mm. And the problem I have with that is that it distracts the public from the reality. And the reality of human trafficking in America is not that somebody's gonna come take your child so they can drink their blood. The reality of human trafficking in America is a human trafficker is trying to get your 14-year-old daughter to send him a nude picture so that he can extort her, and he's doing that over a social media platform that she's doing under your roof. So parents have locks on their doors. I got, a, I got a Malinois. You want to come into my house? Bring it. I'm not even going to need to get a gun because my dog's going to rip your throat out. Uh, so my,
0: my dog is We've not, got a Dutch Shepherd. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, My, yeah, my, my, dog know, does my not, wife loves it. Yeah, not, yeah the, the yeah.
1: dog the dog loves my wife way more more than it does me. Um, but we, we have all these like physical measures to protect mm. our children. When the biggest threat to our children is that device that you gave them when they are in their room and your Wi-Fi router. So you are better off not having a Wi-Fi router in your house if you wanna protect your children than you are having like locks on your doors. That is the important thing for parents to understand. Almost all, and, and, and I, I usually hesitate to use the word all, but almost all human trafficking cases in the United States of America originate online. The victim was contacted Online, every once in a while, it's the runaway at the bus station yes. or something yep. like that. But for the most part, it is online, and that's the thing that parents need to understand. And one of the things that we uh, have available right now, it's in beta, so please be be uh, be kind to us. Uh, but people can go to the app store right now, and they can just search "deliver fund" or "human trafficking safeguard," and they can actually download an app that gives them access to a subset of our data. And that data is the human trafficking watch list, which was created by Liver Fund, and, and we own that. Uh, and it's also a, it, it gives access into billions of data points that are associated with human trafficking. So if your phone number is in our database and pops positive on that app, you've got some explaining to do.
0: Or if your daughters, your sons. Yeah, yes. uh,
1: or email address, mm-hmm. or the, the coach's name, the soccer coach's name, or something like mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. one of the things we have done at DeliverFind over the last 18 months is moved from just helping law enforcement fight human trafficking to helping everybody fight human trafficking. Now, uh, we do charge for that app, because it's not free, But all of that, all of those resources is $1.99 a month. So all of those resources go into keeping the computers spinning, keeping the engineers fed so they can keep their fingers on the keyboard and actually build these technologies. And we'll have more and more uh, data coming into that app over time. But imagine this, imagine if now every single parent before they do anything with anybody, Right, 16-year-old girl has a new friend that she met at high school. Run her phone number through our app. Mm. If it pops positive on a commercial sex traffic, mm-hmm. uh, on, on, you know, on, on a commercial sex advertisement, high, high probability that 16-year-old girl is actually recruiting your daughter. The soccer coach's name pops positive. Without posi- knowing yeah. what she's doing. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. soccer coach's name pops positive on the human trafficking watch list for a human trafficking associated crime. Probably better tell somebody about that. The reason why human trafficking has proliferated in the United States of America is for two reasons. One is the internet. National Center for Missing and Exploited Children found that there was an 846% increase in suspected child trafficking cases over a five year period. When you overlay the data of what happened, it was the introduction of the iPhone and the Facebook app. And it has only continued to go up from there. So human traffickers are contacting your children on the internet. That is happening. It's a sales funnel to them. It's a it's a numbers game. Uh, and we'll give you a link that you can put in the show notes to a quick Thank little you. reel yes. that, that explains that. The other thing that's happening is a complete lack of sunshine. If somebody gets arrested for a human trafficking related crime, and I say human trafficking related because a lot of local jurisdictions, the laws are real old. So they're they don't have a law called human trafficking. They call it pimping and pandering or aggravated prostitution or something like that, but it's, it's human trafficking under under the federal definition. Somebody gets arrested for one of those crimes, there's no transparency into that. So, so they're not a sexual, sexual offender? Nope. They're not on that list? Nope, they're not on that list. So, so we what, are creating... So Sunshine is the best disinfectant. Yes. So we are making it so that everybody... Can be a ray. Everybody in U.S. society can be a ray of sunshine and help fight this problem.
0: How involved are you in shaping the policy for the for the country? Are are you in those discussions, or is that just a a route you don't want, really want to uh,
1: go? I am in those discussions, but intimately, but very much the, uh, very much behind the scenes. I don't want anybody knowing which politicians I'm talking to. Uh, because that becomes a point of yeah. attack. And yes. and we have gotten attacked. There's a, a company called Pornhub. Yes, I know you're listening, Pornhub. Um, there's a, a company called Pornhub who actually spent money hiring a PR firm to go after us because I was pointing out that human trafficking is happening on Pornhub. They don't like that. They don't like the sunshine. And so we're helping everybody become a ray of sunshine. So if anybody wants to get involved in the fight against human trafficking, but they're full-time jobs, soccer moms and dads, and got to take the kid to jujitsu and the daughter to ballet and all these different things, everybody can get involved by just going to the app store, downloading the app, paying their ninety-nine a month and having access to that data. And they may not use it for four or five, six months a year, but when they need it, it's there. It's very similar to when we run a background check for employment. Mm-hmm. We don't mm-hmm. expect I mean we, we background check everybody at Deliveroo now. We do it internally because we have mm-hmm. the resources mm-hmm. to do that. But when you hire somebody and you run them through a background check, it's really a block checking Benign. exercise. Yeah. You don't expect they anything haven't murdered to come someone. back positive. Yeah. But what happens their when their taxes what happens when somebody does, when something does come back positive? Mm. Right? That it's like holy smokes, I'm glad I did that. Yeah. It's very rare, but the consequences of not doing it are completely deleterious so so that's that's where we're going as an organization uh and we're not only doing that for everybody from you know the the soccer mom the stay-at-home mom all the way to industry so every single industry banking payments transportation hotels hotels motels uh you know the gig economy stuff Mm. i don't want to mention any names of companies yeah um but they're all compl- they're, they're they're all complicit but they're not in on it that's a conspiracy theory no you cannot buy children through wayfair like that's not real but what you can't <laughs> right but human- i've not heard that one. Oh yeah it's a, it's a crazy conspiracy theory but you can uh find human trafficking victims in the hotel chain in the four-star hotel that you're staying at when you're on business travel because the customers don't like to go to the Motel 6. They don't wanna go to the cheap motel. They wanna be at the high-end hotel and that's where they feel comfortable. So that's where the Mm. traffickers bring the girls. We have a trafficker we've been working on for quite a while who lives in penthouse suites and five-star hotels. He is private jet rich. He's got his own jet. Guarantee you his pilot does not know where he's getting all of his money. He takes his girls to some of the, the ritziest jewelry stores in a major city major metropolitan area in Texas. and I guarantee you that jeweler does not know that he that that trafficker is rewarding his girls with some jewelry for for good behavior. He's also using their jewelry to launder his money. yes yep. so so <coughs> what that jewelry store owner can do, what that hotel manager can do is just integrate our data so Didn't that access yeah so that they can say, oh sorry we don't do business with your kind. Maybe they report it to law enforcement, maybe they don't, it doesn't matter. You're just denying territory to the traffickers. And that's, that's where we're working. And that's why we think that once we, once we finish and, and complete our technologies and roll them out to all the places they need to be rolled out, uh, the math shows that we'll have over 80% reduction in online commercial sex trafficking in the United States within a seven year period. Whew. That's impact. Can't do that in the government.
0: No, you can't. No, you can't, <laughs> sir. So, f- for the listeners, parents, go get the app. Have Absolutely. a hard conversation with your children, which is a
1: hard conversation because you don't want to admit that evil exists. And we have to al- your- all the resources to have those conversations Good. on the Deliver Fund YouTube page. All you literally can just have your children watch YouTube videos. So with we'll
0: you. put the links to that in the article right now. For the uh, the listener who wants to get involved or help, is money the best way? If it
1: and- is, that is. Absolutely. If you're an industry Mm -hmm. and you need data to eliminate human traffickers from your platform, whatever that might be, we have the ability to make that very quick and easy for you to do. If you are the average citizen, download the app, use it, run everybody you can think of's phone number through it and uh, eventually, pretty soon, you'll actually have the ability to, if you get a positive hit, to report that back to us Mm -hmm. should you choose to. Mm If you're law enforcement, reach out and get training and data and software. It's free to you. All you gotta do is hit us up with your official email address. Please don't hit us up with your burner Gmail address because um, we will authenticate that you're actually law enforcement. Mm-hmm. But. Mm-hmm. Hit us up get the data get the training get what you need to do your job better faster and cheaper and if you are a individual or a corporation uh with a philanthropic heart and you doesn't have to be half million dollar donations it can literally be five dollars a month five so five bucks is roughly what it costs us to de-anonymize a burner phone five bucks so every give up a cup of coffee for deliver fund every month And you can actually help pay what it costs us technologically to figure out that this burner phone is associated with this person over here. It's that cheap. And for people with donor advised funds, philanthropic foundations and things, we are completely privately funded. Uh, we're platinum rated on GuideStar. We have the highest rating giving and excellence has ever given. Good. Uh, we are a completely transparent organization and we're, we're a really good use of philanthropic dollars.
0: Okay, so I think that's the call to action. Sign up for $5 per month, 60 uh, bucks.
1: A- no, no, just no, it's $18 a year or $1.99 a month for the app.
0: What I'm saying is, for the listeners, my oh, call yeah, to action yeah. is yeah. recurring donation, $5 Absolutely. a month, $60 uh, annually. Mm-hmm. If we can get, you know, even if we can get 500, 100 people to do that, that's that's 100 phones, that's as significant. you said, demonetized. Uh, you, you make me feel selfish now, like I'm not doing <laughs> enough, man. So thank you for that. Uh, it's always good to feel small and uh, reassess uh, your priorities. But What's kind, uh, Nick, exceptional background. Thank you for serving the country, and the fact that you are a living example, that service extends beyond the uniform, Absolutely. and you've done that in multiple ways. So um, I think for the listeners, we're all trying to drive impact, find something that's actually going to impact the community around you. It doesn't have to be nationally. It doesn't have to be globally. It's amazing what one person can do if they affect three people.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, brother. And hey, keep uh,
0: Keep up the uh, the good fight. All right. We'll see you guys next time.